0: Hello, and welcome to a history of the United States. Episode 79, The Glorious Revolution. In our last episode, we tracked how England got through the 1670s and 1680s, ultimately getting us up to King James II, fleeing the country in December 1688. In a bloodless revolution, William of Orange invaded the country and took control, all with the support of the people. Today, we'll get into just what this meant. The Whigs and the Tories were forced to abandon some long-standing principles for the good of the people. One such feature was the move towards democracy. Indeed, the post-revolutionary settlement would define the scope of British political liberty until the 1832 Reform Act. The Tories had long believed in the divine, hereditary right. The King ruled because God had ordained it. This put them in a rather uncomfortable position. Parliament had expelled James II and intended to replace him. This meant either that Parliament was divine, or there was no such thing as divine, hereditary right. They attempted to form a compromise and have James's daughter, Mary, as sole ruler, and then William would be the prince consort. But given the broader geopolitical situation, that was inadvisable, to say the least. Expelling James and advising the Dutch had put England on a collision course with France. William needed as much authority as possible to fight this fight. He needed to be joint ruler. The Tories agreed in the national interest. The right wing of the party remained Jacobite, and several high church bishops gave up their power because they were simply unable to reconcile their consciences. This is important, and to explain how important it is, I need to jump forward in the story a little bit. This was a huge issue for the Tories. The Whigs had their issues with the settlement, But the principle of Parliament interfering with the succession was very uneasy for the Tory party to cope with. It broke a line of succession going back centuries to just hand the throne over to a Dutchman. They knew they had to, but it caused deep divisions. This was taken a step further in the 1701 Act of Settlement. Mary and William had no children, And William did not remarry when Mary died in 1694. Mary's sister, Anne, had children, but only one of them, Prince William, survived infancy and he died in 1700 at the age of 11. This meant that in 1700 there was only William and then Anne in line to the throne. There was nobody else in the constitutional line of succession. The only person who came remotely close was James Francis Stuart, the now 12-year-old son of James II, but there was no way that was going to happen. For one, it was unconstitutional. The 1689 Bill of Rights banned Catholics from taking the throne. In short, things were looking quite problematic for the royal family. A creative solution was needed. It was necessary, in fact, to go back three generations to James I. James had been succeeded by Charles, but he had a daughter as well, Elizabeth. Elizabeth married Frederick V of the Palatinate. Okay, here's where things begin to get a bit complicated. As part of the Thirty Years' of War, that I'm really not going to get into, Frederick V was briefly made King of Bohemia but was then forced out after a few months. He ended up living in exile in the Netherlands. They had many children, one of whom was Sophia, a cousin to Charles II and James II. Sophia married Ernest Augustus, the Duke of Brunswick-Luneburg, and Prince of Callenburg. Now, for a lot of various reasons that are really interesting, but which we really don't have time to get into, Brunswick-Lunneberg was turned into an electorate of the Holy Roman Empire, essentially making the ruler, now styled as the Prince-Elector, a member of the Electoral College for the position of Holy Roman Emperor. This is how Sophia took her title, Electress. Now, Sophia was Protestant and was viewed as the best possible choice of monarch, so she was placed into the line of succession By the 1701 Act of Settlement. This didn't go down well in Scotland, which still felt very close to the Stuart dynasty. It had, after all, ruled in Scotland since 1371. The Scottish Parliament said that it had the right to choose its own successor to Anne. This confrontation eventually brought the two separate kingdoms together in the 1707 Act of Union creating the Kingdom of Great Britain. The decision to choose Sophia as heir was viewed as necessary by the Tories of the country, but it hurt too deeply. Sophia died in 1714 and was replaced by her heir, George, Prince-Elector of Brunswick-Lunenburg, colloquially known as Hanover. When Anne died a few months later, George became King George I of Great Britain, and then the Tories tore themselves asunder. This stepped the stage for the Whig dominance during the 18th century, particularly under the leadership of Robert Walpole and Pitt the Elder, which will be very important as we guide Britain and the colonies towards the revolution, but we are really getting ahead of ourselves. Back to the Glorious Revolution. So, in addition to altering the line of succession, what else changed? Well, religious toleration was added for the non-conformists. But the laws against Roman Catholics remained. Although, in reality, the situation was more complex. The laws existed, but they were not actively enforced, aside from moments when there was a Jacobite threat. In general, there was freedom of religion. The Whigs were more inclined to support this, and William, than the Tories, but William was by no means a leader of the Whigs. His interest in English politics was centred on who could help him defeat Louis XIV, and their political party didn't particularly matter. Anne would, later, actively prefer Tories, and then, as I mentioned, the House of Hanover would see a Whig ascendancy. It also made Parliament the senior partner in government over the monarch. From 1689, no monarch attempted to rule without Parliament, or ever went against it. As things stood in 1689, the only real matter of importance was stopping the French. This saw the Nine Years' War sometimes referred to as the War of the League of Osberg, or King William's War. It is sometimes considered the first-ever world war. It would see England and Holland forced into cooperation, which both sides were greatly uncomfortable with. The two sides had been commercial rivals throughout the 17th century, but this was about to change as England fully mobilised its resources. Very soon afterwards, England stopped seeing Holland as a rival, and they were able to work together. The biggest issue for the French was their military balance. Louis had long prioritised his continental army, and only the actions of the court meant that some attention had been paid towards the upkeep of the navy. Louis wasn't particularly concerned with it and hadn't bothered to stop William's invasion of England, even though he considered this to be a Dutch declaration of war against him. He was preoccupied with fighting the Holy Roman Empire in the Rhineland, He did, however, provide support for James to invade Ireland, in an attempt to divide the English, but it was half-hearted. His navy did nothing to stop William invaded Ireland and defeating the Jacobite forces at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. The war in Ireland dragged on for another year, but James was forced once more to flee to France. He never returned to Britain. This allowed the war to turn back to the continent, A few English and Dutch victories, particularly the destruction of French ships at the harbour of La Hogue, were devastating to Louis. French industry was already struggling following the Edict of Nantes, and the collapse of the French fleet only made the situation even worse. France would struggle to raise revenue throughout the conflict. The main effort of the war was the land-based fighting in and around the Low Countries, there was also fighting in Spain and in Savoy. There was more activity around the world, but I'll get into some of this later, particularly the North American theatre. It was a long and difficult conflict, but the French suffered the blows of losing its two best generals in 1695. Finally, in 1697, a peace was made the Treaty of Ryswick. The Swedes acted as mediators for Europe as three separate issues needed to be resolved. The status of the English monarchy, which was the prime concern for the Dutch and the English, the rights to the succession of Charles II of Spain, which was the prime concern for the Holy Roman Emperor, Leopold I, and French territorial ambitions throughout the continent. Louis decided to recognize William III as King of England, and promised not to support King James II, or his son, in an attempt to regain the throne. Louis didn't want to concede anything in the question of the Spanish succession. He decided to relinquish most of his conquered territories instead. This appeased the Dutch, English, and Spanish. Leopold I was unhappy, but he had his own issues in Germany. He was in conflict with the Turks, and his elevation of Hanover to an electorate was unpopular. He was forced to give in and sign the treaty. The peace lasted three years. In 1700, Charles II, the last of the Spanish Habsburgs, died. Charles was the result of a highly incestuous dynasty, He came to the throne at the age of four in 1665 and was physically and mentally disabled, in addition to being infertile. He also ruled one of the largest states in the world, an empire that spanned the globe. It was realised that he would not have children, and the issue of what to do when he died had long troubled the European heads of state. On his deathbed, he named Philip, the Duke of Anjou, as his heir. Philip was Charles' great-nephew. The troubling thing for Europe was that Philip, now Philip V of Spain, also happened to be the grandson of Louis XIV of France. Louis immediately moved French troops into the Spanish Netherlands, and refused to exclude Philip from the French line of succession. This could potentially unify the crowns of France and Spain, such a thing was unthinkable to Europe. The Holy Roman Emperor was an Austrian Habsburg, and he claimed the throne for his second son, Charles the Duke of Austria, who proclaimed himself King Charles III. In 1701, the grand alliance of the Holy Roman Empire, England, soon to be Great Britain, and the Dutch, was reestablished to fight France. War was declared in 1702. This was the War of the Spanish Succession. The war was very long and very complicated, and so I don't particularly want to trouble you all with the details. The most important factor was that, despite its name, the War of the Spanish Succession was about Louis XIV and France, and it was more of a continuation of the Nine Years' War. The English were primarily concerned with reducing the potential power of France, and in ensuring that France would not interfere with them. This made them much more receptive to peace than, say, the Austrian Habsburgs. They wanted Charles as king of Spain, whereas the English had no fundamental issue with Philip being king, as long as he wasn't also king of France. When the English and French people's tired of war, it was this that was able to bring about a peace. The Treaty of Utrecht was signed in 1713. It allowed Philip to be King of Spain, which was a huge victory for Louis, although he could not also be King of France. In exchange for this, territories were ceded to the Dutch Republic on the continent, and in North America to Britain. Spain ceded several territories to England, including Gibraltar. The 1701 Act of Settlement was also acknowledged by France and Spain, securing the succession to the English throne of the House of Hanover. The Holy Roman Empire would not sign though, and force on for another year. It allowed the Habsburgs to gain control of northern Italy, giving them an effective buffer against France. Charles was not forced to give up his claim, but in practice, Philip V was acknowledged as the King of Spain. In that same year, Queen Anne of Britain died, and George I came to the throne, sparking the rise of the Whigs in English politics. This effectively sets the scene in Europe for the next century. We should now be very comfortable talking about events in America as we move towards the Seven Years' War, so we'll leave things in Europe here for the moment. Next time out, we can get back to Virginia, which, if you'll recall, had just moved its capital to Williamsburg from Jamestown in 1617, although we're going to skip ahead a few years to about 1710. If you've enjoyed today's episode, remember you can find out more information online. You can go to the website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, if you want any extra information or to sign up for our membership feed, you can find me on social media. I'm at History Jamie on Twitter and facebook.com forward slash The History of Podcast. You can send me an email, podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.